0: Thanks for listening to the Theory Lab Podcast. I'm Joe Cotter of uh, our research department at the American Cancer Society, here with Dr. Carl Sachs. Carl, we just got off the phone with um, Jason Mills, Washington University, St. Louis, uh, Dr. Ronan Sumajan, Northwestern University, and Dr. Ishwar Hariharan at Berkeley. So um, why them? Um, What made you think uh, those three in particular would be good together?
1: Well, I I was originally thinking about colorectal cancer and the fact that, you know, we're we're up on colorectal cancer month, and Ronan came to mind immediately because he's one of our new, relatively new RSG recipients. I think he's had his grant for just over a year now, and he's doing some very interesting things involving um, the immune system and inflammation. And then as soon as I started thinking about inflammation, I think about Jason Mills, who's a, um, um, a veteran of the ACS. He got his RSG, oh, probably in about 2007, 2008, just as I was coming on board. And um, he actually looks at, at um, the upper part of the GI tract. He's much more interested in gastric cancers, but he's also interested in inflammation and the way inflammation affects stem cells. And as soon as I started to think about stem cells, Ishwar always comes to mind because being a, an MD working in a undergraduate biology department, um, he's a unique commodity. I don't think he's ever practiced medicine in his entire life, but he is probably one of the most important developmental biologists of our time. Um, He works on Drosophila, and he's interested in cell growth and what regulates cell growth. Obviously, inflammation is is an important part of that, no matter what the organism is. So I just thought about that, and then I realized I had an MD who was working in an undergraduate Biology department. I had an MD, PhD in Jason, and I had a PhD working in the clinical department. I thought, what a great, what a great three people to pull together.
0: Yeah, I thought this was a this went really well. I thought it was a good conversation. You um, uh, you pleased with the result, Carl?
1: I'm very happy. Yes, I think they, they hit on some very interesting ideas that I don't even think they were necessarily thinking about in the the way. That they ended up with by the end of the conversation, for sure.
0: Yeah, that's the, those are the best conversations. Well, Absolutely. let's get to it.
1: Welcome to all of you. I think I would like to ask each one of you first off, colorectal cancers, cancers that are actually anywhere along the gut tube, what is the thing that you think about first? And I guess I'll start with Ronan. Because you're the most directly focusing on colorectal cancer,
2: right? And of course, I focus on a subset of colorectal cancer. Absolutely. As well. what, what, what comes to my mind immediately is inflammation and injury <laughs> that mm-hmm. lead to it.
1: hmm Well, and it it seems to me that Jason, you're also worried about inflammation in the upper part of the uh, gastric system. Yes.
0: Uh, yes, yeah. In fact, uh, um, we put in a not yet successful PO1 that I was PI on for NCI, which was looking at uh, colorectal cancer, gastric cancer, pancreatic cancer, and um, also hepatocellular carcinoma with the idea that all of them have precancerous lesions and uh, and a role for inflammation. So we, that's really what we're interested in is, is, and I think the thing that occurs to me when you say that is that almost all of these solid organ cancers in adults, well, have a component of a a precancerous lesion or metaplasia or history of injury or damage preceding them. And we had the chance to harness that, I think, and look for common mechanisms along the GI tract. Anyway, that's my, that was the pitch for the for the program project, and uh, we believe that pretty firmly here in, at WashU and the, and uh, my collaborators and I. So that's that's our take.
1: And do you do all of your work in animal models?
0: In and here we do the bulk in animal models, but because I'm a pathologist, we also have a lot of tissue banked of every kind colorectal, pancreatic, gastric, um, and hepatic, hepatocellular carcinomas. We have all of those, and including in the, in the stomach, we have a whole tissue microwave, a few hundred precursor lesion, metaplasia, and inflammation-associated lesions. So uh, uh, we try to correlate with, with the human. And then sometimes when we want to find molecular Correlates. We do that in organoids. So we do mm-hmm. uh, organoids from the luminal GI tract. We really haven't, we're, aren't sure what to do with pancreas and liver, but we do stomach and and intestines. Okay. So there, and also sometimes cell culture, just again to look at the molecular side. Okay.
2: So we do the same. We do also some colon organoids. Uh, but I wanted to add, even though we. Also, bulk of the work in my lab also done in a in a mouse model. We use human um, cells, human cancer cells. So I, I will either implant uh, hmm. actually you know PDXs, so you know patient derived tumors, mm-hmm. or we will implant right. immortalized cancer cells. So there's still some component of you know human biology in it.
3: And Ishwar. Yes, so I guess what I do is very is the most different to what uh, Jason and Ronan do. So even though I trained originally in medicine, um, my lab now works almost exclusively with Drosophila, uh, and we study epithelial biology. But two things that we're studying, which are very relevant to the issues that have been brought up, um, obviously the advantage of our system is that we can do quite sophisticated genetic manipulations to try to understand the the genetic regulation of these processes. So one aspect which ties in with what Ronan and Jason have already spoken about is that we're interested in how tissue damage stimulates cell proliferation. Um, And the other aspect which we're getting very interested in more and more is that we realize that um, most cancers and other types of overgrowth are, are focal lesions, which means that they're They're typically a clone of abnormal cells arising in a field of relatively normal cells. And we're interested in the interactions between the cancer cells and their almost normal neighbors and trying to find ways in which we can perhaps empower the normal cells to kick the cancer cells out of the epithelium. And I've I personally I've always found that one of
1: the most interesting aspects connecting developmental biology and cancer biology, in that it's it's the genetics of morphogenesis that seems to me to be one of the the main areas that are the commonalities of the two. I mean, why is it that, that a normal human liver st- always looks like a liver. It grows to a particular size, and then it stops. The organs around it always grow to the right size and then stop. But there will be lesions, and I think that cancer itself, I, I think I agree with you completely, Ishwar, that cancer really is a lesion on the normal tissue. And I think I know that, Jason, I think you're thinking about metaplasias very much the same way. And it will be interesting, to me at least, to hear the three of you talk about the inflammatory components to that and the other kinds of insults and how you can each maybe use your particular systems to ask subtly different questions.
0: Yeah, I think maybe, unless uh, you, you had somebody else in mind first, I, yeah. I, I just, there's, a, there's this, there's um, a set of experiments that really informed our thinking on this, which goes jibes exactly with what what you were saying, Carl, that uh in the in the pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma field, the, the PDEC field, there were a series of experiments that culminated in one that I, I thought was just sort of exemplified how important both the inflammatory aspect but also the developmental aspect of tumorigenesis is so, as you all probably know, I think it's fair to say the the and, and I come sort of as an outsider, but we've been attracted to it because of this um, that one of the best mouse models we have for human cancer uh, in terms of being faithful to the progression the. Um, resistance to to treatment once it's established, Uh, even sort of the metastatic pattern is in the pancreas where you run uh, a constitutionally active KRAS, which is what accounts for the vast majority of of cancers of this type in in humans, in the acinar cells, so the mature, usually not very proliferative at all, long-lived cells that do the digestive enzyme secreting. And if you put That constitutionally active KRAS in those acinar cells, I always build this up for dramatic effect, uh, people found that nothing happens at all. (laughs) But uh, if you injure the pancreas or you put p53 mutations on board, but those I think are a bit of a red herring in in this experiment um, with regard to how we normally think about p53. But the main thing is if you injure the pancreas in a way that the acinar cells think they have to repair, and then come back into this more embryonic-like state that uh, they reprogram into, then suddenly that KRAS uh, mutation drives expansion of a clone. And and for whatever reason, uh, and this is kind of interesting too, is the cell competition stuff that I was talking about arises. For whatever reason, the surrounding cells don't respond to that, that clone, and then you get a, a tumor that can progress completely uh, to metastatic cancer, although it can go uh, reasonably far, and in, in, the, in sort of the, the best experiment of this type where you can just remove doxycycline and that constitutively active KRS is under doxycycline uh, control, then the tumors will stop growing and, and those cells will revert back to being mature acinar cells. So the, the take-home is that the, the oncogenes that even a really powerful one in an organ that's particularly susceptible to it still don't do anything until that oncogene is expressed in the right cellular context. In this case, uh, an embryological, embryo-like progenitor context that is induced by injury or inflammation. So that kind of informs on all of these aspects that you need a metaplastic change and the metaplastic change is because of injury and the injury induces these mature cells to come back into the cell cycle and it's in that state and they do that by accessing an embryonic developmental program as Carl was alluding to and then once they do that and then they have an oncogene on board then then those cells are in trouble but even then if it's only that one oncogene before other mutations come up uh, if you get rid of that oncogene, then the cells either return or maybe at that point are recognized by neighboring cells. I, I don't think it's actually been worked out how the, those tumors regress, but they, at least they, they they stop growing. So uh, that's what really informs all of our thinking, and, and then the, the other aspect of it is that the the markers that mark this embryonic-like progenitor cell in the pancreas in those experiments are pretty much the same that mark the first metaplasias you get in the stomach in root to gastric cancer and the ones that you get in, in Barrett's esophagus in root to adenocarcinoma of the esophagus. Um, and even some of the changes you get in plasticity events in, in the intestine, though it's more complicated there, uh, but also in the liver. So there's it, it's because probably they're all returning to that embryonic-like um, endodermal, uh, probably progenitor state to try to repair a lesion, and then that embryonic state is pretty dangerous if you have mutations. So those are kind of how we, yeah, definitely see how inflammation intersects with with uh, development. And I, I guess the uh, one other aspect of this is that if you allow then that these mature cells that are not normally dividing can reaccess the embryonic program, but then usually repair and then go back to being um, those non-proliferative cells, then that's also a great way for them to bank mutations that are not otherwise deleterious or or clonogenic and start accumulating more and more somatic uh, mutations with age until maybe the last time they try to repair something and, and enter that stage and then progress as a clone. So that's pretty much our that's what, what we're excited about, and uh, how, it, how it relates to developmental biology, which is, of course, how we kind of started on this whole project with inflammation and damage.
1: So, Ronan, how do you see your studies in inflammation um, yes. complementing yes. Jason's? Yeah,
2: this is actually great. So, so. Uh, we, we think exa- very similar things, so as it appears one one thing or one mutation is not sufficient to, to to induce cancer and so what we actually think about is innate immune cells or neutrophils who are very potent at uh, you know exacerbating inflammation and very locally because those guys coming in and they are not everywhere they for example in the colon they localized to the crypts area, where actually exactly where uh, you know all the stem cell resides, all the progenitor cells cells reside, and so we actually very interested in in asking those questions. So so if whether we have already one ongoing uh, thing like Kras mutation or APC mutation or anything like this, can neutrophils, for example, contribute the other factor to drive carcinogenesis? And actually, we have some. You know, very interesting thoughts. Um, First of all, connecting to development, it's very interesting. If we, for example, take out you know uh, uh, tumor grafts and we profile them, we see huge heterogeneity in those tumors, even though you know all the rest uh, rest of the conditions were the same. But we when we think about it, we don't need—I mean, that's the problem with with the tumor, right? We need only one or two cells to be right. uh, different to then escape all the all the checkpoints. Um,
0: H- heterogeneity in what? Just a, 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 what kind of heterogeneity?
2: So, various. For example, if we take them and we grow them, we can see that various subclones will grow in a different, in a, a completely different rate. They will have different morphology, and okay, yeah. if, if if we look at uh, mutations, some mutations like uh, T53 or you know, mutations that were a wild type in those cells, we can see some of them acquire this mutation, some of them are not. Uh, <clears throat> and so, but what we we just actually just published a recent paper with the support of ACS, the, where we kind of argue that. Uh, uh, the, the neutrophils, for example, or in, they can, through inducing inflammation, they can provide this just one extra step where they uh, impair DNA repair. And so, and, and so as you can imagine, if we cannot resolve uh, DNA damage in the right way, that's when uh, cells, well, some of the cells will die and some of the cells will progress to to become genomically unstable and, and, and cancer.
1: So Ishwar, do you think that um, the notion of indeterminate growth has has a role to play in in any of this as well? Those those organisms that have
3: so-called indeterminate growth. Um, so a, a, as you know, Carla, I've been very interested in this phenomenon recently. Um, there are organisms like fish, and uh, you know, even. For example trees and lots of crustaceans that have indeterminate growth they never completely shut off the growth program um, but I'm, I'm unconvinced whether that has anything to do with um, cancer because those organisms don't seem to be particularly predisposed to cancer um, you know, but on the other hand I do think that um, shutting off growth when a tissue reaches the right size um, has something to do with cancer because, um, as you know, we've done genetic screens in Drosophila, which gave us, um, you know, and we found mutations where tissues overgrew. Mm-hmm. And that's how right. we and other Drosophila labs, for instance, discovered the HIPPO pathway right. about um, now, now almost 15, 20 years ago. And um, clearly the normal function of that pathway is to arrest growth when a tissue reaches the correct size but components of those pathways uh, are excessively active or impaired in various ways in various cancers. So uh, I think that sort of makes sense because um, you have all these genes whose normal function is to tell cells when to stop growing, to kill off cells when there are too many of them. And unsurprisingly, um, cancers sort of hijack those programs to be able to, you know, continue to grow when they should stop growing and not die when they should. So, I mean, that's one connection. But um, getting back to the argument, uh, getting back to the point that Jason was talking about, um, we, we published some, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, a, a Swiss biologist, Ernst Hardorn,
2: uh, oh, did yeah. some beautiful
3: experiments in drosophila where he showed that um, injured drosophila tissues, specifically the imaginal discs, could switch fates in a pretty dramatic way. So, for instance, uh, a tissue which normally makes, you know, a leg, if you damage it enough, could end up making a wing. So, so there was this plasticity that was induced by exposure to damage. Um, so, we published a paper about a year ago in eLife where we sort of tried to dissect this phenomenon genetically, uh, and we showed that cytokines which activate the Jak-Stat pathway, together with JNK signaling. Um, do seem to make cells um, seem to put cells into a more primitive, more plastic state, which then allows them to switch fate. So, this probably ties in with some of the things that both Jason and Ronan were talking about because um, you know, inflammation leads to the production of all these cytokines right. produced by white blood cells, um, and, and, and therefore, inflammation and the presence of you know, leukocytes can maybe promote tissue plasticity. And, and cause switches into, or of cells into states where they're more susceptible to neoplastic transformation. So I, I think, uh, once again, we're seeing that uh, questions studied by developmental biologists are very similar to questions studied by cancer biologists.
0: I'll actually say, to complement that, that we are doing our own fly work also because of this. <laughs> but we've tried to keep it related to the GI tract, so we're looking in fly gut and various injury models where you have to recruit stem cells to proliferate, and we think those are going to involve plasticity, and we think that the, some of the underlying architecture, as Ishwar was saying, is going to be conserved. For example, uh, jak signaling and unpaired in, in flies and IL-6 in mammals always pops up in these inflammatory settings where where cells are going to to reprogram into a more regenerative phenotype. So, so that's our big uh, our big kick is in fact to look at, at very specifically even even more specific to the pathway of how mature cells can access these embryonic or regenerative or cell fate switch mechanisms. And um, if uh, we uh, even decided to to give this ability of cells to do this a name because we figure it, it the same genes keep popping up and uh, the program seems to be conserved and it's sort of just as cells have access to apoptosis and and other uh, programmed cell death uh, programs, then they also likely evolved as multicellular organi- organisms the uh, ability to take otherwise functional cells and commandeer them for stem or progenitor or reparative states, and probably that's not going to be different in every tissue and every organism. So we've been looking for those features and want to focus on exactly the, the cell biological and molecular program that is may be specific to that. And we have a few gene candidates, and we came up with our name, which we call palogenosis because it was the only thing uh, that hasn't been commandeered <laughs> palogenosis coming from the Greek for return to, yeah, because retro and there's all, everything else reprogramming has sort of been used, but it doesn't really focus on the, the osis, like, mm-hmm. you know, apoptosis, that that uh, inflammation can cause this kind of, it induces program, which probably does involve Jack's that although Jack's is, uh, that isn't, that would be, a, it's going to be a critical part of this program, just as actually mTOR and P53 are going to be, but of course they're involved in, a hundred other things. But we're looking for genes that are really specific, that when you knock them out, nothing happens until you need to cause an injury that that uh, recruits these cells and then that might be also involved uh, in, in tumor genesis. Because if you can't repair, you also tend not to be able to to make tumors. So the two things are sort of the flip side of the same coin. Or actually, as we say, there's actually a triumvirate because as you age you get much worse at regenerating and uh, so you probably uh, also are less able to cause tumors, except for the, at the same time, you, you've accumulated many mutations that make you pro-tumorogenics. Anyway, so, but those are our, uh, uh, where everything is about polygenosis now. In, in other words, looking at the specific mechanisms that are conserved from flies to humans, actually from, in some ways, uh, from some yeast in terms of how they uh, mm-hmm. deal with stress and come out of quiescence. Uh, and we think that's going to be how cells, reg- it's going, to, it's the reason why they have a specific program is to license them that this otherwise dangerous phenomenon of taking a, an old cell and trying to bring it back into an embryonic state. So there's, there's a lot of licensing. And if you license too much, then you can't regenerate and the organ collapses and, and the organism can die or, uh, but if you, Allow too much licensing, then you license cells that have DNA damage, and you run the risk of of generating clones and Of course, just like we had we started off it's all about these it, it, our research is all about the the interplay with the immune system and the that cell autonomous decision to become a dangerous clone that no longer listens to cues about size or growth and and that neighboring cells can't control. Um, But anyway, we're all, I think, studying the same thing and from different, slightly different perspectives.
1: It's been fun to hear it. And um, before we finish, I guess one of the things I'd like each one of you to do, and you can pick your order, um, but think about a, a cancer patient or an oncologist who doesn't have any kind of research experience at all. What do you think they could have gotten out of the conversation that you guys just had? At a very high level, you guys discussed some very um, important aspects that I don't think often get put together as well as you guys just did it. But if you were to now take what you have just discussed and or your your general um, lab's view itself, what would you tell them about
3: um, what you just heard? So I, I think traditionally cancer cells, sorry, cancer treatments have targeted the cancer cell itself. Probably one recent exception is immunotherapy. Right. But um, I think what this kind of work that the three of us have talked about is the interaction is how um, cells in the immediate vicinity of a of an emerging cancer either contribute to or retard its growth. So these could be you know, inflammatory cells which, in some ways, fuel the cancer. It could be uh, the adjacent normal cells which might be trying to restrain its growth. And my hope is that there'll be future treatments which target these interactions. So we know that cancer cells have unstable genomes. So often the traditional anti-cancer treatments might work for a while and then the tumor might escape. But if one were able to target these interactions between the neighboring cells, whether they be inflammatory cells in the cancer or the normal epithelial cells and the cancer, that might present new ways of treating epithelial cancers. How about you, Jason? Thanks,
1: Ishwar.
0: Uh, I think uh, since Ishwar took sort of the cell non-autonomous and the, the, uh, the aspects that we talked about, I would say that the thing that w- that, that's been exciting in the field and is emerging and might be helpful for cancer patients to understand how cancers develop and then potentially how we might have new angles to treat them is that there may be in adult cancers, like especially colorectal cancer and those of the GI tract, really common mechanisms that the cells that eventually give rise to a cancer use to become potentially dangerous. Those cells are trying to repair some damage in response to inflammation or to loss of other cells. And in doing that, they enact a common program that may not be just specific to livers and pancreases and And intestines and esophagus esophagus, that in many cases they're all trying to return more towards um, a primitive or embryonic state to try to repair damage and they get stuck somewhere in that state and they can't unstick themselves and then they start to expand and uh, eventually then acquire other mutations and become tumors so if there's a lot more Consistency in the way that cancers originate, then, then we can maybe we we can be not so depressed about what happened to our optimistic thinking in the 70s when Nixon declared war on cancer and thought that maybe cancer was a single disease that that we could cure, and now we've become completely pessimistic and think that even within an organ, um, uh, as Ronan said uh, there's so much heterogeneity that every cancer is different, but there may be some more similarity than we expect in that all cancers were trying to, or the majority of cancers were trying to repair a lesion and to do this, they, they do many of the same things to try to access an embryonic program, which is something that we've known for 150 years or so that many of these uh, tumors have in common, that they look much more embryonic than they look uh, like adults. So they're all trying to do that. And that has implications for the formation of cancer, but it also might have implications for what happens once a cancer is formed which I don't think we've fully explored, which is that when cancers are growing, they may think that they're still trying to repair some damage, and they're constantly trying to re-access this program. And it's that ability to sort of cycle in and out of a a reparative state that allows them to escape therapy. So if we could trick them all to either be um, more mature or all to be embryonic and reparative at the same time, then we might be able to, to synchronize them in a way to improve therapy. So that's our that's sort of how I would summarize a lot of, of, of both my lab's interest and the field's interest and, how, and the things that we talked about, the three of us.
1: Thanks, Jason. And Ronan, we'll leave it to you to, um, to, to finish it, it up. off. <laughs> yes, the, the uh, Ph.D. in the clinical department.
2: Yeah. No. So, just I think to summarize is uh, the way I view cancer, and I guess many people are, including all of us here, is cancer is basically a non-healing wound, and we should treat it as such. I think, and and what does what it means is that there are many players that contribute, you know, to cancer. Uh, including you know the neighboring cells and the carcinogenic cells and the immune system and everything, and so I think when we think forward it's very important to just keep coming up with new combinations of drugs because I think I mean to actually get rid of cancer we, we just need to view it as a whole system and come up with m- and, and combine as many treatments as possible in one, of course, personalized. The different
1: tumors. Of course. Okay. Well, thank you all very much. I I don't know about anybody else, but I had a ball listening to the three of you just bounce ideas and things off of one another.
0: Yeah, it was it was fun. Thank you, Goodbye.
1: John. Thank you, Carl,
2: and Joe. Okay. Thank you so much, everybody. Good luck.